According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we begin, let's go ahead and peruse a couple of passages, one of which is the one I just cited. If you want to join me in Second Peter chapter 3, we'll take a closer look at the larger context, including verses I don't typically quote or cite in my uh, opening recitation. I typically begin with verse 13 of Second Peter chapter 3, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And then I drop on down to verse 18, but let's see what's in between here. He says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. All right, we recognize that there are areas of Scripture that aren't the easiest to grasp onto, but we still accept them, believe them by faith, learn them, wrestle with them, and uh, implant the word within our hearts. Now notice, which the untaught and unstable distort, which the untaught and the unstable distort. Notice the way those are linked, untaught, unstable. Stability is in found in teaching. Keeping yourself humble underneath the Word of God will produce not only teaching, but also stability, so that we are not untaught or unstable. Which, as they do also the rest of Scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. There is a warning associated with watching for new heavens and a new earth, and that warning is against the false teachers, and the warning is against falling short, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. See, believers can fall, but the idea is to get back up, get back in the Scriptures. Teaching produces stability, produces glory for Jesus Christ. That is the context for grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity or forever. Amen. Recognizing what we're doing is we are a part of God the Father's grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And so far as we contribute towards his glory, we are a fellow worker. These are very important principles to begin uh, our study this morning and really any study. All right. Join me now in Isaiah chapter 1. Just getting a couple of passages, reminding ourselves of what we do and why we do it. Why are we here this morning? Well, that's coming out of 2 Peter chapter 3. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth. We're receiving teaching for stability. We're on guard against false teaching. We're growing in the grace of knowledge. That's why we're here. Now, the circumstances for how we're here, I think... uh, comes up here in Isaiah chapter 1. There's other places, of course, but I like finding places that are easy to find, and the first chapter of a book is easy to find. Isaiah is a huge book. It's an easy-to-find place in the Old Testament. In verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he's writing to Jerusalem here, but he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. 
when he's name-calling, he's making a point. This is not a friendly message. This is not a happy message, but it's one that needs to be given. And Jerusalem better wake up and listen, or they're, they're fixing to receive what uh, Sodom and Gomorrah received. That is, divine judgment and destruction. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. All right. Now this is describing the worship of the Old Testament, the worship of the Levitical system, the worship of Israel. If we're going to bring it forward into our application, if we were to take this and bring it forward into a church age context, we would say, uh, what are your Bible studies to me? What are your prayer meetings? What are your fellowship times? I'm sick of them. They're supposed to be a sweet-smelling savor, and instead they stink. Why? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Again, bring it forward to the church age. Quit coming to the prayer meetings. I'm sick of hearing it. Now why? What is it that makes uh, a prayer meeting an abomination? What is it that turns a Bible study into a waste of time? A trampling of the courts. We're to remove our shoes and approach on holy ground, as it were. But he says, trampling of my courts. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. And here's the key. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. That's why we begin every Bible class with silent prayer. Make sure that we have the opportunity to confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we volitionally choose to not confess and we choose to sit here in carnality, or we go to a prayer meeting out of fellowship, that is iniquity in the solemn assembly, and God says, I cannot endure it. It's fun to search the Scriptures. Maybe fun's not the right word, but it's interesting to search the Scriptures that describe an omnipotent God, but find the half dozen places where it says, I cannot. This is one of the things God cannot do. God cannot lie. There are a lot of things God cannot do. And this is one of them. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. We could, again, put that in a church age application. He says, I hate your prayer meetings. I hate your Bible studies. I hate your fellowship times. I hate your uh, deacons' meetings. I hate your mom's night outs. I hate your your uh, whatever. Plug in the event that should be done under the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you're doing it in carnality, he says he hates it. It's a burden to him. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Ever notice that your prayer life seems not to be working? Well, carnality is a big clue there. There's a solution, though. Again, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. See, that's confess and move on. Confess and forsake. Where you're confessing and ceasing. And then you put yourself back under teaching. Learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. See, if you're in fellowship, you can serve. If you're in fellowship, you can serve. All right.
Second Peter 3, Isaiah chapter 1. These are the principles for how we conduct business. Always have, always will. Just good to remind ourselves of these things accordingly. Matthew chapter 2 is our text. Let's take time for silent prayer to apply the principles of what we just read. Making sure that any unconfessed sin can get dealt with so that we can sit here in righteousness and receive instruction. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we acknowledge that who is adequate for these things, none of us are. And yet you make us to be so. We thank you for washing us, regenerating us, making us alive in Christ. We thank you for raising us up and seating us in the heavenly places in Christ. We thank you, Father, for all the work that you've done on our behalf, not because we've deserved it, but because you desire to do so for your name's sake. We thank you, Father, for your grace, eternal plan of the ages, for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've called us to be a part of that plan. You've blessed us to be a part of the bride. Father, we thank you for this assembly this morning and the opportunity we have to open the Word of God, the freedom we have in this country to meet in, uh, in a public building with a sign out front, uh, to advertise in the local paper and tell all the world who we are, what we are, and where we're doing it. I thank you that we have this freedom. I thank you that we can redeem this, these opportunities. We ask now, Father, for distractions to be set aside. We ask for diligence and concentration upon scriptures that uh, Peter would probably say this is hard to understand. So, Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit guides us in the truth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have uh, quite a number of things to deal with today. And another reason for spending an expanded time in Second Peter chapter 3 is to acknowledge the fact that there are scriptures that are difficult to understand. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and give up on them and say, oh, well, no, because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and we need to humble ourselves and be profited from the message as it goes forth. Notice in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, we've hit a couple of these already. We're about to hit a couple more. I'm talking about scripture fulfillments and statements of Matthew that this was necessary to fulfill the scriptures. All right. There's been a whole lot of it. And uh, for instance, in verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. All right. So there is a fulfillment of scriptures. There is... um, a previous one up in verses 5 and 6 when they said that uh, Bethlehem would be the birthplace and uh, there is again fulfillment of the scriptures and that's very clearly uh, a citation from Micah 5.2 as the, uh, the uh, chief priests and the scribes were answering Herod's question there with respect to the birthplace of the Savior. Verse 5 says, this is what has been written by the prophet. Now, that's not Matthew writing that. That's the the chief priest and the scribe saying that, but it is an accurate quote nonetheless. In verse 15, it's Matthew writing, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And, And that is under 
direct verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That is the Holy Spirit's testimony to the Old Testament prophecy in Hosea 11.1 and its fulfillment in Matthew 2.15. So we've heard two of these. There's now two others coming up that we're going to deal with. Verse 17 says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. So we will focus on that this morning with the massacre of the babies. That's number three in this passage. And then... The last verse of chapter 2, where they came and lived in a city called Nazareth, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so there is the fourth of these places where in Matthew chapter 2 we have Old Testament scriptures being cited by New Testament authors and how they are handled in the New Testament becomes a very important study. So, keep in mind we're looking at these four different Old Testament references or allusions, and we will see those in time. In our outline so far, there are really six points of study to this chapter as we're giving it. And uh, the first one that we gave you, after the Magi had obeyed their dream instructions, Joseph also received a dream. We focused on the four imperatives. We also focused on the obedience. We focused on the explanation that was offered. Joseph being having the spiritual maturity to not only obey commands, but also to receive, to be entrusted with instructions, with explanations. Under point two, we saw the immediate obedience, that he did not wait until morning, but he obeyed immediately. Important principles for our application. If God expects immediate obedience and we start to dilly-dally or, or delay, then uh, we are, in fact, uh, defying God's will. Under point three, Joseph and his family. There's subpoints for all of these, but I'm just rapidly going through the main points. Joseph and family remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. Until the death of Herod. Very important that we recognize that the timetable for all of our tests is established by God the Father. We don't know ahead of time how long any particular test is going to last for the most part. We have to simply proceed through it one day at a time. And day by day by day we proceed and we endure through the test. And the end of that test is in the Lord's hands. Joseph had no way to know how long they were going to be living in Egypt. He and Mary were just simply there by faith, knowing that at some point of time the Lord was going to call them to return. And sure enough, that's precisely what happened, and we examined that. Now, under the massacre of the babies, we just barely got a start on it last week. This is point four in the outline, Herod's massacre of the babies from Matthew 16. I'm sorry, Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. We gave you some of the Columbia Encyclopedia uh, article, history article about Herod and his insanity in his later years. I'll pass by all that this morning. But recognizing the... Uh, the term in verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked, because this is a reflection of his cosmic thinking, which is what we gave you under subpoint A. In Herod's cosmic way of thinking, he had been tricked by the Magi. Again, verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. Now, we know that's not reality. The reality is described for us in verses 1 through 15 that God had warned the Magi and they had left, they had uh, retreated, they had uh, departed by another way in obedience to the will of God. They, they were not tricking Herod. They did not intend to when they departed from his presence and they did not intend to trick Herod when they departed from Bethlehem. It was no malice or trickery or, or a mockery on their part. But Herod took it that way. He took offense that way. And this is the nature of cosmic thinking. This is the nature of the world, the, the selfish, me-first attitude, that if, uh, if, 
it's possible to be offended, then uh, typically the worldly person will be offended because their pride gets hurt, their, uh, their selfishness gets tweaked. And, uh, and here we have it in Herod's viewpoint. He believes that he's been tricked, that they've made a fool of him, that they've mocked him, made him a laughingstock. Important that we spot these things because they are typical of cosmic thinking. All unbelievers, of course, have cosmic thinking. But unfortunately, believers also develop cosmic thinking the longer they spend in carnality. Romans chapter 12 makes it very clear that this world will conform you. That's why we're commanded to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you don't let the Word of God transform your thinking, if you're not growing in grace and knowledge and operating in the filling of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to be conformed to the world. You'll start developing cosmic thinking. Now it's important that we recognize the trends for what they are. Under subpoint B, a wicked... Whoops. We find that Herod accurately um, typifies the proverb in Proverbs 28.15 that a wicked ruler is destructive to those he rules. A wicked ruler is destructive to those he rules. Herod was the king of these babies that he murdered. The inhabitants of Bethlehem were his subjects. It would be his role in the function, in the establishment life function of government. It would be his role to provide, protect, to shepherd Talking in earthly terms now, in establishment principles, it's the role of government to protect the citizens. However, godless government, cosmic government, that's not fulfilling the Father's plan for uh, laws of divine establishment, um, turns it around. They become uh, wolves instead of shepherds. They start preying on the sheep. They start victimizing their people. And uh, a government, an out-of-control government functioning under cosmic principles becomes very tyrannical, very abusive, destroying what God designed government to do. Just like uh, an out-of-control, uh, dysfunctional family under cosmic thinking gets very brutal, gets very abusive, uh, totally defying what God designed in the establishment principles for family. All right? We can go on. Marriage. Um, sexuality, all the things that God has designed for marriage uh, can, under cosmic thinking can be totally perverted, totally warped, totally um, mangled to where you have abusive marriages and you have the, the dysfunctional things that we have there. We see it all the time. And then it comes right back down to volition. I think a lot of times when we break down uh, the laws of divine establishment, we're quick to think about nationalism, families, marriages. But we forget that very first one is volition, is human volition. And it comes down, when that gets perverted by cosmic thinking, then we wind up in this, in this every man does what's right in his own eyes, and what's right for me is right for me, and you have no business to say anything about it, and, and, and all the rest. So when when... Establishment gets out of work, uh, out of whack because of cosmic thinking. We see these things occurring, and this is what we see here. Uh, Herod, indeed, the wicked ruler, and very destructive. And I think uh, passages like Proverbs 28:15 and other passages in Romans and Second uh, Timothy. I mean, we're told to pray for the king. That's a good thing. We should be praying for our leaders, for our rulers, that we might live a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That uh, God would bless us with a government that fulfills. His purpose and design in these areas. And what we want to highlight this morning is to move on to the main point C, is that Satan was the motivation behind Herod's actions. 
Satan was the motivation behind Herod's actions. This has to be very clear. Satan was the motivation behind Herod's actions. It's, it's sad, actually, that the expression has become so cliche that when we hear the devil made me do it, uh, we, we write it off as saying, well, that's a pathetic excuse. But we do want to recognize the satanic influence upon unbelievers. We want to recognize the satanic influence upon world events. We want to recognize specifically the satanic influence and the satanic activity at attacking the seed of the woman promise for 4,000 years prior to this event. This is an ongoing continuation of Satan's efforts to destroy the seed of the woman before the seed of the woman can crush his head. Satan was the motivation behind Herod's actions. Now specifically, I've listed Revelation 12.4 and 1 John 3.12 as a comparative verse. But there are other, other uh, verses as well that I didn't put in the notes and maybe should be there to help reflect the universal nature of it. And I guess before I get to Revelation of 1 John, I'll go to Ephesians 2 where we were on Sunday morning. Ephesians 2, because I think this helps to describe the cosmos. Ephesians 2. And remember, I, I, I try to keep things simple, alright? Because um, <laughs> that's just the way I think, alright? And God didn't write the Bible so that brilliant scholars can learn it and everybody else just kind of has to take their word for it all right he wrote the bible that everybody can read it for themselves and that all believers can grow in grace and knowledge and uh, so i think the simplest we keep things the better so real obviously we can recognize this letter is being written to believers we know that because ephesians 1 1 says to the saints all right to the saints and you can debate whether the words at Ephesus belong there, but to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So whether the words in Ephesus are truly there or not, regardless, this is a letter written to saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's a letter written to believers. And so Paul is writing to believers at Ephesus or wherever. He's writing to believers. In chapter 2 he says, you used to be dead. Okay? Let's just keep this simple. It's a letter to believers who used to be dead. And it's describing the universal nature, the total depravity of man, of unbelievers prior to salvation. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this cosmos. See, that's why I said all unbelievers have cosmic thinking. All unbelievers are functioning in the world system one way or the other. And they might be following ascetic trends or lascivious trends. They might be following human good. They might be following a variety of different things. But regardless of which flavor of human good they're doing or which flavor of the world's thinking they're following, it's still the world's thinking. According to the course of this cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's according to Satan. They're serving Satan so long as they are operating, living, operating in the cosmic system. By default. They're not serving the Heavenly Father according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the spirit that's impelling them, motivating them, guiding their thoughts, activities, and so forth. Among them we too all formerly lived. We all used to be there. Every believer had a time when they weren't believers. 
I think sometimes, though, it's been a little bit too long ago for some folks. I think some folks get saved just a little bit too long and forget that they ever were unbelievers and forget the grace that saved them and start thinking. And they would never voice it, of course. They would never tell you face-to-face that they've always been saved. But that's kind of in their thinking and their approach when they look down some long, snooty noses and see some uh, sin problems or see some unbelievers. Just stop and remember, hey, you know, we used to be there too. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. See, that's the universal nature of this fallen human race. That includes Herod. That includes every unbeliever. Okay? But now specifically bringing this back to Herod now, and recognizing the satanic motivations here, you'll notice that the devil is involved in this, And the Apostle John was allowed to see an apocalyptic vision that portrayed this. All right. They didn't have DVDs back then and special effects. They couldn't have, uh, you know, uh, Peter Jackson making a big Lord of the Rings movie or something to, you know, to watch on DVD. But they had visions. And this is what John got to see. Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. All right, This is a sign. This is a vision. This is all symbolic that John's allowed to see. And it's painting a picture. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, now the woman, you have to figure out the symbolism and the imagery and so forth. This is Israel. All right. And on her head a crown of twelve stars. Of course, Israel was a nation of twelve tribes. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. So we have here the the impending birth of the Messiah who was born under the law, who was born the tribe of Judah, the nation of Israel. Verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Again, this is symbolism, but we have no problem recognizing the dragon, representing the dragon. All right, Recognizing the diadems, indicating that he has political authority in this world. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This is the the key verse that really leads most uh, scholars of angelology to speculate or to understand that in the fall of Satan, one-third of all existing angels at that time followed after the rebellion, and so that to this day, two-thirds of the heavenly hosts are what we call elect angels that are still serving God, and one-third of the heavenly hosts are now what we call fallen angels in rebellion against God, pursuing Satan and his, and his leadership. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child... When she gave birth, he might devour her child. Okay? This is all symbolism. This is all imagery. But can you see what it's pointing to when you go back to Matthew chapter 2 and you see the virgin bearing forth a son and you see the satanic attempt to murder that baby? And to be darn sure that we get that baby, we're going to murder Every baby, at least all the boys. And just to make sure we get the right one, we're going to get the ones that are two years old and under. Okay? 
And in somewhat logical uh, uh, supposition, it may have not been not strictly Bethlehem, but it may have been a perimeter around Jerusalem as far as Bethlehem, which could have encompassed any number of other villages, including Ramah, for example. So we'll see these things here as well. So there's the symbolism. There is the apocalyptic vision that John was blessed to see in, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Now you'll notice, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. <laughs> so just like that, we skipped over the entire life of Jesus Christ. We skipped over his life, his death, his burial, resurrection. Uh, all we're seeing here now is the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. Okay? Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. We're looking at tribulational prophecy there. So we've just bypassed the whole church age. We just passed over the age of incarnation, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, by simply saying he was snatched up to heaven. And we just passed over the entire church age by saying that the woman, Israel, was sustained in the wilderness having fled. So, this kind of goes beyond where I really wanted to take it this morning, but we can recognize the typology, the symbolism here in an apocalyptic message such as it is. And then there's war in heaven, Mike on the angels and the things that happen there. Alright? And if you have any doubt who the dragon is, he's identified in verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. Alright? Any questions? <laughs> Talk about redundant and repetitive. That, uh, that verse got it. Over and over and over and over and over again. Let's be very clear who our adversary is. He has all these names, all these titles. He's appeared in all these guises, sometimes even as an angel of light. As the appearance of, oh, I'm so wonderful. Here, come follow me. Deceives the whole world. Was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, well, that takes... That goes on into tribulational matters and things we won't touch today. I just wanted you to see the dragon... Standing above the woman, waiting to devour. Just waiting to devour that child. <laughs> and so, is it any wonder when the Magi show up and say, where is he who was born king of the Jews, that the uh, Satan and all the fallen angels immediately are put on, you know, code red level 5 alert status. Because that dragon's been ready to devour the child now for 2,000 years. See, or 4,000 years if you take it back to Eve. All right. Over in 1 John, we have another passage, one that does not pertain to Herod, but we, in a way it does, and, and we'll see that. 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, where we find the motivation for murder in Cain's part. And so it's no wonder that motivation for murder on Herod's part would likewise be satanic. Now, not every murder in the history of the world is a satanically motivated murder. But, if you boil it on down to cosmic thinking and, and satanic influence, then I think you can make a case. Because it's not coming from, murder doesn't come from divine viewpoint. It comes from cosmic thinking. Well, in 1 John 3.12, the 
The reference is with Cain. Verse 11 says, This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one. Of the evil one. Now, Adam was his biological father, but Satan was his, shall we say, spiritual father? Shall we say mentor? Okay, his influence. When Christ told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. He doesn't, he's not inferring that, you know, Satan propagated with their mothers and gave birth to these guys. But what he's saying is that he is your spiritual father. You are looking to him for father leadership. You are turning to him for father wisdom. And this is what you're doing. Okay. Cain was of the evil one. Having submitted to cosmic thinking, having submitted to the the uh, lies of evil, the influence of the adversary. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. All right, and slew his brother. It's quite interesting to see that. Uh, Again, going back to Christ and the Gospels, that he was a murderer from the beginning. And that reference applied to Satan. In any event, when we see the concept played out here in Cain with Satan in 1 John 3, and we see the concept there, and then we turn to Revelation, and we see the symbolism of the dragon desiring to devour the child, And we take that and we go back to Matthew chapter 2 and we see Herod's desire to murder the infants. I think it's a pretty clear picture of what's going on here. And when we pile it on top of every other attempt that's been made from all the way, starting with Cain murdering Abel, all the way to this point for 4,000 years, the attempt has been made to murder the Jewish people, to murder the seed, to prevent the seed of the woman from ever arising and achieving the victory that he was destined for. Which leads us to point D. Even while allowing for satanic and human negative volition to achieve unspeakable evil, God the Father continues to maintain His eternal purpose in fulfilling His Word. It's kind of long and wordy, but I want you to get it down. Even while allowing for satanic and human negative volition to achieve unspeakable evil, now, these, these babies get killed. And that's not a good thing. But it works together for good. Because all things work together for good. Even while allowing for satanic and human negative volition to achieve unspeakable evil, God the Father continues to maintain His eternal purpose in fulfilling His Word. God the Father continues to maintain His eternal purpose in fulfilling His Word. See, the plan of God that includes volition is an amazing thing to to consider. So amazing, in fact, that a lot of folks are afraid to think about it. (laughs) And uh, they develop doctrines of sovereignty that deny volition. They claim that you have volition, but then they declare that every volitional choice you ever make 
was determined, controlled, and designed by God the Father, so you didn't really have a choice. And therefore, your volition isn't truly volition, as we understand volition. All right, that's another subject altogether. Here we have volition at work. Volition is at work. Fallen, angelic, satanic volition is at work. Fallen, human volition is at work. And fallen, satanic volition and fallen, human volition is working to murder these babies. God's not murdering these babies. But he is permitting, under permissive will, for angelic and human volition to rebel. And yet, we see fulfillment. We see faithfulness. We see that it's not out of control. It's not out of hand. Verse 17 says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. In other words, the plan of God continues. This is a horrible evil. And yet, it's not thwarting God's plan at all. 600 years ago, he spoke of this. See, Jeremiah prophesied about 600 B.C., on to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Probably, of course, he was an old man at that point in time, so he was probably prophesying even in the early to mid-7th century B.C. All right. What had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then the citation. It's printed in verse 18, and it's a citation from Jeremiah 31 in verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Let's flip back to Jeremiah 31 and look at a larger context. Jeremiah 31. Let's get a larger context than just simply a one verse citation. All right. Isaiah, Jeremiah. My Bible wants to go to Ezekiel every time I get to that part of the Old Testament. I guess I must have spent some time in Ezekiel. <laughs> it's kind of creased. Alright, Jeremiah 31. Now, there is um, a much larger context for this uh, in the course of the entire chapter. Um, notice in verse 31, at that, in verse 1, as the chapter begins, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. And the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's chesed. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. 
And that verse just blows me away every time I think about it because she's, she's the harlot. She's the faithless wife. You know, she's Gomer in the book of Hosea. She is um, a holoban, a holobama of, of Ezekiel. You know, here is, here is a, a woman that's anything but a virgin. And yet in the promise of restoration, in the promise of millennial and eternal blessings, God does what is impossible to be done in the earthly world. In the earthly world, you can't take a non-virgin and, 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 and undo what they've done and, 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 and turn them into a... You can't wave a magic wand and say, poof, you know, you're, you're a virgin again. All right? But God does. God does that here with Israel. So, many, many blessings uh, looking ahead to Second Advent. Hey, keep in mind, we, we're the blessed church age that can look back to First Advent, look forward to Second Advent. We've got a very clear perspective on Old Testament prophecies and being able to tell. I drew this out for you last week. We have the perspective and the opportunity to be able to look back and see all of these Old Testament prophecies and, and put them in, in, in cookie jars, you know, or whatever you divide them out into, and you're putting them in baskets and, and recognizing this is a first advent prophecy, this is a second advent prophecy, and we can sort them out. Okay? Israel has never been a faithful virgin to the Lord and serving Him, and they won't be until tribulation refines them and humbles them and breaks their rebellion and brings them to Him. Then He creates in them a new heart. All right, so we have we can we can place these things in their context. But now, with respect to a remnant being saved, and with respect to the present circumstances, keep in mind Jeremiah can look forward to Second Advent and give them all these wonderful promises and hopeful messages and say things are going to be great in the millennium. When back to reality, now we're sitting here in Jerusalem, surrounded by Babylonians, about to get destroyed. All right, we're about to get creamed. The temple's about to get crushed. The uh, the whole place is about to get burned. Uh, Daniel and his friends are about to get captured, castrated, and taken off and put into slavery. I mean, there is some horrible things that are about to start happening here in the history of Israel when Jeremiah is prophesying. And so we have uh, the promise of a remnant. And um, as you see in verse 7, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel and uh, promises that come here. So you've got to understand that in the in the total picture of Jeremiah 31, there is a lot of content that's going out. Now we can focus on verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And that's cited in Matthew 2 as being fulfilled when Herod murders the babies. But let's take a look at what's going on here. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. In other words, stop it. And your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Okay. Now in the sadness, their children are being taken away and they'll never see them again. Okay. Let's, let's, we're, we're painting two pictures here, okay? And for the moment, we're going to put Matthew aside where babies get murdered, okay? And babies get murdered, that's over and done with, and, and the children are lost, the children are gone, okay? But now go back 
586 years, go back 600 years, to the captivity, to the, the conquest of Jerusalem. And these are moms that are watching children, not infants being slaughtered, but young men being carried away into slavery, like Daniel, like Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, all right? like Ezekiel, uh, five years later, will be carried away. And he says, um, and of course, in their hopelessness, they refuse to be comforted. They are no more. Oh my, we'll never see him again. Okay? More cosmic thinking. You always assume the worst. You always assume there's no answers. There's no hope. Nothing I can do about it. Oh, poor me. And Jeremiah is saying, when I stop that. Stop that. There's a time to weep, but there's not a time to be a hopeless cosmic thinking idiot here. There is hope for your future. In verse 17. Okay. Restrain your voice from weeping, verse 16, and your eyes from tears. Your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. This captivity will have a conclusion. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. We studied this in Ezekiel. That crowd that was taken off into captivity was God protecting his promises. That was the remnant. He took Daniel and the three young men. He took Ezekiel. He took all that crowd over into Babylon and he preserved a remnant there in Babylon. So that when he comes and wipes out Jerusalem, he's not destroying the seed of the woman himself. All right? So be encouraged. There is hope for your future. Verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. Now, this is remarkable because God is recognizing here that in their captivity, Ephraim will be humbled. The chastisement will do its work, that they will be repentant and humbled and blessed and say, you know what? We needed this captivity. I needed this divine discipline. Now I'm confessing and repentant and turning back to the Lord. Okay. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> That didn't happen when Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel brought the people back. All right? That didn't happen when under, as I say, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, in the three waves of returning exiles, and they, they got back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple, and they did all these things. Well, first of all, they rebuilt their houses. They, they planted their fields. They put up a wall. They, they did a lot of other things. Didn't get around to building a temple until Haggai and Zechariah come along and kind of kick it in gear. Okay? This repentance, this confession, where Ephraim, representing all Israel, says, you have chastised me, and I was chastised. See, that's a believer that says divine discipline did what it was supposed to do. Like That's Job saying, therefore I retract in dust and ashes. This is repentance because the correction of divine discipline has done what it's supposed to do. Okay, That did not happen under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This will happen in the Great Tribulation. The only thing that will humble Israel, break their rebellion, turn the hearts of the children back to God the Father, is going to be hell on earth, ministry of Antichrist, and worldwide Armageddon. See, it will be tribulation that will produce, verse 18, where Ephraim will finally say, man, that's it. All right? You are the Lord my God. 
So, um, well, the rest of this here, for, uh, verse 19, Ephraim continues to speak. For after I turned back, I repented. <coughs> that turned back is the first rebellion. And then repented is the turning back a second time. After I rebelled, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child indeed? As often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. All right, so this looks forward to second advent, looks forward to Israel being humbled, being restored to their land of promise and all the blessings of what Jeremiah is talking about. All right. <laughs> There's Jeremiah in a 10-minute nutshell. You know, a book that could take years to study and plunge to the depths of the weeping prophet. The weeping prophet priest, Jeremiah. All right. We're almost done. Clock says so and my empty coffee cup says so. Now, the, um, the voice heard in Rama. Lamentation and bitter weeping. All right. Put yourself back now 600 years before the cross. And you're reading this passage. There's no clue in this text that we're looking ahead to something. All we have is a picture of looking back or looking at the exile. Looking at Nebuchadnezzar destroying Jerusalem, Daniel and everybody else getting called, uh, hauled off into captivity, and Daniel's mom and other moms um, crying. Okay, And this passage all appears to be about captivity and restoration. There's not a hint in this passage, in this immediate context, in this book, or anywhere else in the Old Testament, that this is, in fact, a messianic prophecy looking forward to the birth of the Christ. Similar to what we dealt with last week with Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. From all appearances, from all immediate context, the prophet Hosea was not given a messianic prophecy looking forward. He was looking back to the Exodus, looking back to Moses leading Israel out of Egypt and establishing an earthly nation amongst other earthly nations. And so we find... Once again, we find um, what would otherwise be an un... <laughs> why, why try to wing it when I got the notes right there? Note again, this event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. Note again, this event fulfilled... What may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. Just like with out of Egypt I will call my son. This event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. This is where Satan's out of his league. Because his minions, they could recognize the Bethlehem prophecy, for example. The scribes, the chief priests, the agents of murder that they were, 
the cosmic thinkers that they were, they could read Micah 5.2 and they could recognize Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. They could spot the, the uh, obvious prophecies. But they had no clue that Hosea 11.1 was going to apply to the coming Christ. They had no clue that Jeremiah 31.15 was going to be fulfilled in this. When it comes to the secret things of the Lord belonging to Him, we recognize that He is really brilliant in not only the things that He discloses, but the things that He withholds, as in church doctrine, mystery doctrine, all of that's withheld until the church. But even with respect to messianic prophecies that He chose to withhold, is it any wonder that it's things in which angels long to look? I would tell you it's things in which fallen angels long to look because they're getting frustrated trying to thwart God's purposes. And they can't do it. They can't do it. Again, I, I uh, drew this picture out for you last week. That we had... Um, all these Old Testament prophecies that were just simply given. And I forget now the colors that I used. Let me, uh, let me restart. In fact, if I get something I'm happy with, I'm going to make a PowerPoint slideshow out of it and I'll use it again and again and again and again. All right. Old Testament. And we have prophecies given. And I'm just going to call them X's. Prophecy X. All right. They can apply to any number of prophecies. And remember, all prophecy is future at the point that it's given. That blew my mind away when I first read that years and years ago. When I had my very first, I think Ralph hit me with it. And said, you know, all prophecy is prophetic. <laughs> all prophecy looks ahead. We're in that church age where we're looking back and we think that, well, you know, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. That's past it happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, but he's going to conquer the nations and sit on the seat of David. Well, that's future. Because it hasn't happened yet. And Ralph said, you've got to quit thinking past future, past future. Because all prophecy is future. When it's given. <laughs> when Isaiah spoke, a virgin shall conceive and give a child, that was 700 years future. Just because I'm reading it 2,000 years after the fact, doesn't change the fact that it was a future prophecy. So all prophecy is future. And so in the Old Testament, they're all given as X's. Okay? Now, we come along in some cases, and I'm going to use blue and red here. We come along now, and we're able to take these prophecies all given in the Old Testament, and we're able to break them down. And we're able to find, okay, this one's a blue one, this one's a blue one, this one's a blue one, um, this one's a red one, this one's a red one. All right, this one's a blue one. And what we're doing is we're able to categorize that some of the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament were indeed first advent prophecies. But some of them were second advent prophecies. And we can do that now because we have a New Testament. We have a New Testament that has been written that explains how some of these 
some of these black X's here were really blue X's and they were fulfilled. Okay? And how some of them are really red X's that they are still yet future second advent. Randy Blair pointed out on Sunday night that the vast majority of them are here. There are far more second advent prophecies than first advent prophecies that are waiting still, from our perspective, to be fulfilled at a yet future point of time. Okay, So there's your blue and your reds. But I would also put forth that in addition to the blacks, which are the obvious prophecies, the blues and the reds that we're able now to distinguish, and remember 1 Peter says the Old Testament prophets couldn't distinguish and they weren't designed to distinguish, we are. They made careful search and inquiry and it was revealed to them they weren't serving themselves but us. Okay, that the Old Testament prophets were not able to take this category and, and break it down into, into, these two, into these two envelopes. Okay, All they had was a pile of prophecies. <laughs> they couldn't break them down and categorize them as first advent, second advent. But as I pointed out last week, I think we need to also recognize a, yet another division, and I colored them green, I'll do so again today, is that there were a certain number of prophecies also given in the Old Testament that were not at that time understood to be prophecies. They were not at that time understood to be prophecies, such as Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I will call my son. At the time it was given, and throughout all the Old Testament time frame, Out of Egypt I, I called my son, was looking back to the Exodus. It was looking back to Moses and, and the Exodus and Joshua and the conquest. It was looking back historically. As far as anyone knew, that was a historical passage. As far as Satan knew, that was a historical passage. Remember, Satan and his minions, they have an academic understanding of what the Bible says. They can cite Scripture cosmically. They don't have divine viewpoint, but they can cite Scripture. But not until Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, and not until they bring the baby back into Nazareth, not until Matthew chapter 2 do we recognize that this green one was really there. How about that? That this green one belongs here. As the first advent prophecy. Now we say, hey, there was a prophecy we didn't even know was a prophecy. But it was fulfilled in first advent. We can link it into the blue column. All right? And I would put forth that our understanding of the tribulation in the millennium of Israel and uh, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ likewise will have a tremendous amount of fulfillment that we never even recognized was prophetic. That there were passages in the Old Testament we thought were historical passages in the Old Testament we thought were, were uh, uh, metaphoric perhaps, but we did not recognize that they were actually prophecies until, lo and behold, Jesus Christ reigning from Jerusalem and something's going to happen. He's going to say, by the way, this fulfills what the prophet uh, Obadiah was talking about when he said such and such. And I think we're going to determine, we're going to see an awful lot of green X's when we get to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ and we see things fulfilled that we never knew were prophesied. Okay? Out of Egypt I will call my son. 
Until Matthew 2, we had no idea that it was a prophecy looking forward. The same thing here with Rachel weeping for her children in Jeremiah 31:15. It appeared to have context for the exile. It appeared to apply to the capture of Jerusalem and the taking away of these children into slavery. It was tied to a promise of restoration. And in all of its application appeared to be totally focused on Old Testament Israel. Captivity and promised restoration. Now we get to Matthew chapter 2 and we find out, hey, guess what? There's another fulfillment of Rachel weeping for her children. And it's fulfilled in the murder of these babies. It's fulfilled in the loss that these Bethlehem mothers face and these Rama mothers face. Okay? It's interesting. Bethlehem was a, a short distance from Jerusalem to the south. Rama was almost an equal distance, but to the north of Jerusalem, for example. And that's why I think that the murder executed here was perhaps not simply limited to Bethlehem, but that Herod drew a circle around Jerusalem and as far out as Bethlehem murdered every two-year-old boy and under. Okay? Point E. Bethlehem, and I'm going to have to leave you with this. Bethlehem was a small village, and its population suggests ranges from either 10 to 12 or 20 to 30 total boys that would have been killed in this brutal act. There's different estimates done by different scholars based upon different studies trying to estimate the population of a village. All right? You can estimate populations of a village in a variety of different ways, but, you know, archaeology, and you, you find the, the boundaries of the village, you determine how big it was, you determine how many houses were there, then you estimate, you know, in those houses how many were families with small children versus how many were older families that the children have already left the home, how many were, uh, you know, all of that. And there's demographic studies and estimates, population estimates, and all the rest. At most, a dozen boys, 20 to 30 boys, okay? And, and that fluctuates. I mean, look at a church like Austin Bible Church, and how many babies do you expect will be born in any given year? Well, it was certainly different in 2001 and 2002 and 2003, but we sure st seem to have a streak of them coming along here in 2004. All right, so that's one of the things that fluctuates. It goes up and down. But whether it was 10 to 12 or 20 to 30, however many it was, the satanic effort was to get, they only wanted one. They wanted to crush the Christ, to prevent the Christ from crushing the serpent. Had they succeeded, then, well, you know, you go to the what ifs. You know, what if the baby would have been massacred? You know, well, I'm glad we don't have to think about those what ifs. <laughs> you know, how could he have gone to the cross? Well, fact is, is he wasn't, and the Father was protecting that. The Father doesn't need our help in fulfilling his promises. He fulfills his promises. All right. I think also, this is the last thing I'll say on this, that a dozen babies, 30 babies, um, really no big deal compared to a lot of the other massacres and brutalities that Herod was guilty of. 
<laughs> All right. He had plenty of other murders on his hands. He had plenty of other atrocities that he committed, plenty of other entire towns that he destroyed. So this event here sometimes is criticized. People say, well, how come how come the murder of all these babies isn't recorded in, in any other history books? How come Josephus doesn't talk about it? How come other historians that wrote about Herod? Herod was very well written. Uh, the subject of many written works, how come this event wasn't recorded in other non-biblical sources besides just the Gospel of Matthew? Well, you realize it was not, compared to all the other evil that he did, it was not uh, a significant action on his part to murder 30 babies compared to everything else that he did. And so it's not surprising that uh, such a thing would not be recorded by uh, by, uh, Josephus or Tacitus or any other historian of, of that time. All right, we will come back next week, Lord willing, get to point five. We will see Joseph's obedience in returning to Israel. We will tackle the material in verses 19 through 23 and then uh, actually get to the flip side of this page of notes and spend some time on the four ways that the Old Testament gets quoted in the New Testament. And all four of them are portrayed here in Matthew 2 and uh, get into some a little bit of theology next week that'll uh, on hermeneutics, on interpretation. How do you interpret the uh, scriptures and it'll be, be, be a little bit technical it's going to be a little bit detailed but I think it's going to be very profitable for us to examine so we will spend some time on it next week Father thank you for the truth of your word we thank you for your faithfulness for your mercy love and grace and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name Amen